who is Jesus and what was his mission on the earth? What was it he was seeking to accomplish? If we were to ask that question of everybody in, in, in Weyburn, uh, there would be thousands of different answers. Even among those who would call themselves Christians or Christ followers of some sort, whatever they mean by that, there would be uh, all kinds of different answers. Uh, often, they would be conflicting answers. <clears throat> and so the utter confusion on this matter of who Jesus is, what he came to do, even amongst those who profess to be Christians, is a, certainly a sad commentary on the state of the church we, that we find ourselves in today. But happily, we are not left in the dark about this. In fact, in our passage today, Jesus himself is going to very clearly teach us who he is and what it is he came to do. And so we're going to see how it is that he understood his earthly mission. And so I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4, verse 14. And uh, in just a moment, we're going to read to verse 21. This passage... Uh, is a passage about Jesus uh, when he's in Nazareth teaching uh, in the synagogue. And uh, it goes uh, right through, this whole story goes right through to the end of, of verse 30. Uh, but we're going to cover this in two parts. So today uh, we're going to go to the end of verse 21 and then next week we'll pick up in 22 and go to verse 30. So I invite you to read with me starting in verse 14. <clears throat> And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on Him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So the past couple of weeks, we've been looking at the lead-up to uh, Jesus' earthly ministry. And the final uh, ch chapter of this, of that, was uh, what we looked at last week with Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. And then now in verses 14 and 15, we see that he... Uh, returned from the wilderness into Galilee, and that he did this in the power of the Spirit. So if you'll recall, uh, the Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism and anointed him, we talked about this, in a special way for his ministry and work as the Redeemer, this office he's undertaking. And now, after this testing in the wilderness, he returns to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit ready to begin this, this, you know, his, his work as Redeemer, his earthly ministry. And we see in verse 14 that word uh, about him spread rapidly. So these two verses, uh, 14 and 15, they form a summary statement of his early 
ministry in Galilee. And so a report, we're told, spread throughout the whole area while he was going about teaching in their synagogues from town to town, and he was being glorified by the people, we're told. So many are believing or trusting in him. They're worshiping God on account of what he's teaching and, and doing. And so these, this is a summary of, of this time in Galilee. Uh, but these verses also, uh, they, they begin really a new section, a major section in the book of Luke uh, that starts here in verse 14 and goes all the way through to chapter 9, verse 51. And uh, so if you think what we've covered up till now has been the, the birth and infancy story of Jesus and John the Baptist and then Jesus' preparation for his earthly ministry and then, and then now in verse 14 of chapter 4 begins this new section where he begins his earthly ministry and, uh, and the focus here is particularly on revealing himself in Galilee. And this section goes till chapter 9 verse 51 where at that point we're told he sets his face to Jerusalem. And that section continues till right near the end of chapter 19, where the focus of that section is everything's built around this, uh, the fact that he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's preparing for the cross. Uh, the cross is in view, obviously, throughout the book of Luke. But in chapter 9, verse 51, it begins to become this central focus, and everything's working towards Jerusalem till he arrives there at the end of chapter 9. So in this section... Uh, he's, he's beginning his ministry, he's in Galilee, and he's really revealing himself to the people uh, there. And what we see, interestingly, in verse 15, is that Jesus taught. He taught in the synagogues. He was a teacher. When we hear that, when we think of Jesus as a teacher, uh, we, we might... Um, think of the Sermon on the Mount. We might think of his moral instruction. I think that's what a lot of people think about. He's a good teacher who teaches good things about how we should treat one another. That's how a lot of people think of Jesus when they think of him as a teacher. And certainly he did do that, give instruction about the law and about morality and whatnot. But he taught much more than that. And, uh, and, and starting in, in verse 16, Luke recounts for us one of these occasions in which he entered a synagogue and began to teach. And so, so after verse 14, 15, laying out this general summary of, of what Jesus was doing in Galilee, uh, he then gives us this account of Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth, which is his hometown. It seems clear that this is, is not chronologically the very first uh, sermon or teaching that Jesus did, but it's the first one that Luke tells us about. It's the first one that Luke gives us. And so wh- why is this? Well, it's because this, this particular instance and this particular uh, passage that Jesus reads and his instruction on it uh, is, is particularly helpful for us understanding the whole ministry of Jesus. And, and so, so that we see uh, what, what it is he's about and how it is that he himself understood himself and his ministry and what it is that he was doing. So if you'll remember all the way back in the very beginning of Luke, chapter 1, verse 3, uh, we're told there that Luke presented, Luke is writing an orderly account. An orderly account. Uh, so what that means, we talked about, it's 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 broadly chronological. You know, it starts with his birth and works its way through to, uh, to his death and resurrection. 
Um, but within that, not everything, strictly speaking, is necessarily chronological uh, to, to a fine point. Uh, but what it does mean, this orderly account, is that he's, he's presenting this information to us in a very intentional way. Uh, it's, it's, it's thought through. Uh, he, he's doing this in a, in a purposeful, intentional way. And so in this case, placing this message right here up front in Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, Robert Stein, who's a, 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 a scholar, was a professor at Southern Seminary at one point, um, he, he argues in his commentary on Luke that this story of Jesus in Nazareth is a, what he says is a programmatic explanation of Jesus' ministry. That is, it's meant to help us understand Jesus' ministry moving forward in the book of Luke. Understand what he's up to, what it is he's doing as he goes out and interacts with people. So, we combine what we've already seen uh, of who Jesus is and what it is he's come to do that we've already looked at. So, you know, we've seen that he's the son of David, come to establish David's throne. We've seen that he's the uh, promised seed of Abraham. We've seen that he's the last Adam who's come to bring about the new creation. So we combine that with uh, this text that we're about to look at to further understand what it is Jesus is doing. And so this is an important sample of this teaching ministry of Jesus that Luke has intentionally placed here at the beginning of of Jesus' earthly ministry uh, according to his his, uh, intentional and careful account. And so what we see here in this text is yet another way in which Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. So we've seen him fulfilling the promises to David, the promises to uh, Abraham. We've seen him uh, as the last Adam come to bring about new creation. And here we see that Jesus brings about the great redemption that is prophesied throughout the book of, of Isaiah. Now, if you're not very familiar with the book of Isaiah, that may not seem that impressive, or that may not seem that great, or like that big of a deal. Uh, But hopefully, as we go, you'll see just how great that is, just how fantastic uh, this is. And hopefully, as we go, you'll see the brilliance of the scriptures and the brilliance of God's redemptive plan. And so here's uh, the three... um, the three points to our outline for, for our rest of our time. Uh, number one, we're going to look at Jesus' identity, that he is the servant Messiah of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. Secondly, Jesus' mission, he brings good news of complete freedom for sinners. And thirdly, we're going to look at his mission continued, that the year of the Lord's favor continues today. So that's, that's where we're going. So first of all, Jesus' identity, he is the servant Messiah of Isaiah. So as we read in verse 16, Jesus returned to his hometown of Nazareth, the place where he was brought up, we're told, in verse 16. In verse 16 and he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And standing, he's then handed the scroll of Isaiah. In verse 17, we read that. He unrolls this scroll He locates Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, and then he reads it. So, it it, it may have been that 
you know, it, it happened to be the time of year on their, they may have been going through a, a sort of a liturgical calendar where they're reading Isaiah at this time, and so he's handed the scroll. Uh, but, but we're clearly told that he intentionally finds the place of Isaiah 61, 1-2, and intentionally reads these verses. So he chose the passage that he's going to read and, and teach. And so we're, we're going to go through those words, verses 18 and 19, in just a moment, the, the words of Isaiah that he actually quotes. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll look into that a little more in just a moment. But jump down to verse uh, 20 and 21. So after reading Isaiah, he rolls up the scroll, he hands it back, and he sits down. And then Luke tells us that everyone's eyes are fixed on him. Right? So we, we, you can sort of picture this. He sits down, he's read, what's going to come next? Everybody's looking at him for what's next. And then, in verse 21, the hammer drops. And he says, it says, He began saying to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So th- think of all the questions that they might have had as he's reading Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. You know, of whom is, this, is the prophet speaking of here? Who is this about? Uh, when will these things occur? When will this good news come and be proclaimed? Who is this person? And Jesus says, this is happening now. This is being fulfilled right now. I am the one anointed by the Spirit to bring good news. I am the one who brings about the salvation that God spoke of through the prophet Isaiah. When Jesus says this, when he makes this claim, this is not a this is not just a this is not a small thing. This is not a random verse that he's sort of plucked out and does some twisting to to make it, you know, somehow fit his current situation to claim that it's him. This is a massive claim by Jesus to say that he fulfills these words, that they're fulfilled in their hearing. And I, so let me try to explain why this is. The book of Isaiah shows the need for God to do a great work of redemption in his people. And the book of Isaiah, in the book of Isaiah, he promises that he's going to do just that. It speaks, Isaiah is written to a people who are going into exile. And it speaks of a future return from exile and of a future day in which they will not only physically return, but they will return to the Lord in their hearts inwardly. In chapter 11 of Isaiah, we see that a king from David's line will come and rule in righteousness. And we've already looked at how Jesus fulfills that. He is that son of David. And then as you get to chapters 40 to 55 of Isaiah, we see that this great work of salvation that God is going to bring about in His people Israel and this this work He's going to do even among the nations as well, this work is going to be accomplished by a particular servant of the Lord. So all the hopes of the book of Isaiah, all the promises that are made in there of this salvation... They rest on this particular individual, this particular servant of the Lord. And there are four, uh, what are commonly referred to in Isaiah as servant songs, uh, which highlight the work of the servant. 
We read one of them earlier, uh, read from Isaiah 49, 1 to 13. That's the second song. The first one is in Isaiah 42, 1 to 9. The third one in chapter 50, 4 to 11. And then the last of the four songs is probably the most well-known one. It's in uh, chapter 52, verse 13, through to the end of 53. And this, so this final song, this is the one, you're familiar probably with this, which says that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Right? We, 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 uh, that, that's the one we, we maybe know most. It's perhaps the one that's easiest to identify with Jesus. We can see that happened at the cross where he was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. So there's these four servant songs that really highlight the work of the servant and the fact that this work of salvation is going to come through this individual And then as we get to chapter 61, verses 1 to 2, the passage that Jesus quotes, reads and quotes and says is fulfilled, the words there in chapter 61 are placed in the mouth of this servant as though he is the one speaking. These are the servant's words. And it is these words that Jesus says are fulfilled. These words are his words. He is the one saying these things. He is identifying himself as this servant figure in Isaiah, which means that the entire hope of the book of Isaiah, which rests on the work of this servant, finds its fulfillment in Christ Jesus. So this is amazing. One could and should rightly go back throughout all of Isaiah and see that all of the hopes of Israel that are presented there and the hope of the nations, all this work that the Lord is going to do, all of that is found in Christ. He, it's all going to come true through Him. If we want what Isaiah prophesied about, then we need Jesus. And so just try to imagine for a moment you're in that synagogue and you hear Jesus say these words that these, are, these things are fulfilled in your hearing. Suddenly, you know, they'd be thinking about all of us, you know, they'd have to try to see Isaiah now all through this light. This is happening now. This is the one he's putting these words, you know, these words are his, he's the servant of Isaiah. How that would, that would blow up their world in some ways. And we'll see a little of that next week. It's not a great result, uh, not to give it away, but uh, a lot of them get upset and don't believe But that would be the effect. Jesus is is making this point, saying that he fulfills the words of Isaiah 61, 1-2, and therefore he, he is saying he is the servant. He is the hope that Isaiah pointed to. We know that all of the Bible is about Jesus. I think we would probably all quite readily and happily say that. Uh, On the road to Emmaus, if you think of that uh, story, which is in Luke 24, in verse 27, uh, Jesus is talking to these disciples and he says, it says that uh, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So Jesus is making this very point. He's, he's showing that all of these Old Testament scriptures are pointing to him. It's not that one or two random verses point to him. 
He didn't just rip out one tiny little part of Isaiah. He went to a core piece of Isaiah to show that the whole of Isaiah finds its hope and fulfillment in him. Every major theme of the Old Testament is leading to him. We've already seen quite a few of these in in Luke already. But a few of them are. The promise of a seed to crush the serpent's head. Genesis 3.15 finds fulfillment in Christ. The promise of the seed from Abraham's line. Jesus. The promise of a greater king from David's line. The sacrificial system with its priests and sacrifices. The prophet to come that is greater than Moses. The stone in Daniel's vision that destroys the kingdoms of the earth and sets up an everlasting kingdom. The promise of a new covenant in which all members will know the Lord. And the promise of a servant in Isaiah who will come with the anointing of the Holy Spirit to redeem the Lord's people from Israel and from all the nations of the earth who will make many to be counted righteous. All of these things are fulfilled in Christ. Truly, the whole of the Bible is pointing us to Christ. It's a, it's a, good, it's a great book. And it's a unified book. It's a unified book that tells a unified story of creation, man's fall, and then this redemption, specifically this redemption that comes through Jesus Christ. Isaiah pointed to this. He prophesied about this. And Jesus is saying, I am the fulfillment of this. This anointed servant is Jesus. And he is the one that you need. He's the one that we all need. And for, and, and for those of us trusting in Christ, this is the one that we have. Uh, you think Luther's song, uh, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, he talks about the right man on our side. We need the right man on our side. And that's, that's him. Christ Jesus, it is he. He is the one we need. This... This, the unity of Scripture, the fact that it is coherent, it tells ultimately one story, it makes your study of the Bible and the difficulty of it sometimes, it makes it worth it. You're going to find good things when you plumb its depths. And I, and I hope, I trust that you can see that, you know, the, the better we would understand even Isaiah, you know, that would shed a lot of light and, and help us understand even better our Savior, Christ, and who He is and what He has come to do and what He will yet do. So this doesn't mean it's easy, and my point is not to say that, that you know, the study of this book, it's one story, it's just a simple book in, in every point. That's not my point. My point is that it's worth it. It's worth the difficulty of getting up and trying, you know, early and trying to pull it apart and understand it and struggling with it. And it's worth it. It's the Lord's Word. So be patient with it. Stick with it. Continue the study. Also, I just want to point out, again, Jesus is framing his understanding of himself in light of the Old Testament, based on the Old Testament. So again, this highlights the importance and the authority of the written Word of God, specifically here, the Old Testament. 
So, again, here we have the eternal Son of God quoting the Old Testament. He could just have stood up and announced something new in his own words, and they would have been true words, they would have been authoritative words, he could have gone about it that way, but he deliberately refers to the Scriptures as they have been given to prepare hearts and to prepare the people for this very moment, for his arrival. This is not just out of nowhere. God has prepared His people. He's sent prophets. He has declared in advance what will come, and now it's coming to pass. Until verse 21, all that Jesus has said, I don't know if you have a red letter edition, you'll, you'll see this. The only thing Jesus has said so far in the book of Luke is just quoting Scripture. We looked at this last week at his, uh, in his temptation. The only words of Jesus quoted are when he's saying, it is written, and he's quoting the Old Testament. Here again, when he speaks, he's quoting the book of Isaiah. And in verse 21, when he does say words that are not just quoting Scripture, he's saying, the Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So he's still talking about the Old Testament and how he fulfills it. So if you need convincing of the trustworthiness or the authority or the importance of the Bible or of the Old Testament specifically, then here it is. Here is Christ. Here is your Savior if you're trusting in Him. Here He is quoting authoritatively the Old Testament repeatedly and saying, you know, showing that He is the fulfillment of this. So again, let us not grow weary in our study. Let us see how all of this points us to Christ. All of the Old Testament is pointing to Him. He is the servant Messiah of Isaiah. Secondly, His mission. Jesus brings good news of complete freedom for sinners. So let's read again verses 18 and 19. When he, quotes, when he opens the scroll, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So we mentioned back when we talked about Jesus' baptism that the, the Holy Spirit descending upon him there was, was, uh, this, was Jesus being anointed for his earthly ministry, his earthly mission. And now here in verse 18, uh, that's the way in which this was fulfilled. He, it says there, uh, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Well, this happened at his baptism, right? The Lord, the Spirit descended upon Jesus and this was his anointing for his ministry. And now he's about to begin this Isaiah 61 ministry. And so he's been anointed uh, for what purpose? Well, it says to proclaim good news to the poor, liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, and to liberate those who are oppressed. Now, how do we understand these words? Clearly this is important, as this is Jesus describing his mission. How do we understand these words? Well, in Isaiah, the salvation that's pictured uh, is both, um, we could say, physical and spiritual. That is, there will be a spiritual cleansing in which the people will be released from sin, and there will be a final state in which righteousness will completely 
rule as all God's people will dwell in security forever with the Lord. So it's a, it's a complete picture of salvation. So in that final eternal state, there will be no more physical blindness. All will for actually see in their resurrected bodies. There will be no oppression of any sort by any enemies. There will be no prisons. There will be no sin, no oppression from sin. The redemption that Christ will bring will be complete and it will be total. The curse of sin and all of its effects will be completely reversed and completely gone. But I would argue that these phrases here, poor, blind, captives, oppressed, are to be understood uh, primarily referring to man's spiritual condition. So, uh, why do I say this? In the first uh, servant song in Isaiah, uh, which is in chapter 42, uh, in verses 6 and 7, it says this. It says, I am the Lord. I have called you the servant in righteousness. So, so th- in this part of the servant song, Yahweh the Lord is, is addressing this servant who's going to come. So, I have called you the servant in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you a covenant for the peop- as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. So I would say that uh, clearly this is a reference to those who are trapped in their sin. They are blind due to their sin. They're in darkness, the darkness of sin. If you remember back at the end of chapter 1, verse 79, when Zechariah gives his prophecy after John is born and he prophesies about the work that the Messiah is going to do, uh, it says this, he prophesies of Jesus giving light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. This is a picture of, of sin and its effect. And I would argue that the reason for every other form of oppression that we see, every physical oppression, every anguish, every trial, every physical ailment, ultimately, is because of sin's curse. And so it is true that ultimately, in the new heaven, new earth, there will be no poverty, there will be no dungeons of any sort, there will be no prisoners. Why? Because sin will forever be gone, Justice will have been served, the enemies of the Lord will have been judged and condemned and destroyed and sent to punishment forever, and righteousness will abound forever, and the Lord will forever be with his people. There will be no more sickness, there will be no more sin, and there will be no more oppression of any sort. So, what I'm saying is that Jesus' mission is to give blind sinners spiritual sight, and those who are oppressed by sin, freedom, and that one day in the future, all physical ailments like physical blindness and every other form of oppression, martyrdom, injustice, whatever form of oppression, will also be done away with in Christ and by Christ. So, It is a holistic or a complete, if you will, freedom from all tyranny and all oppression for those who trust in Christ. 
but it begins with trusting Him for the forgiveness of sins. If Jesus was saying in Luke 4 that He came to rescue the physically blind and imprisoned, then it would seem that He, uh, you, you know, if, if, if this was divorced from you know, spiritual blindness and the need for forgiveness, as some people like to do, uh, then it would seem that He failed. Because he doesn't actually do that for very many people. He does heal people. He does heal some blind people. We're going to see this. Obviously, he does. But these times and these occasions, they serve as foretastes of a future reality. And they serve as illustrations of mankind's spiritual blindness. In fact... uh, in the second half of this account in Nazareth that we'll look at next week, we'll see that Jesus didn't do miracles there. And the people were actually infuriated by that and upset about that. Uh, moreover, if it's the physically poor that Jesus came simply to, you know, I don't know, give them money or whatever, if that's just who he came to save, it's the physically poor, not the poor in spirit, then what would we make of Zacchaeus? Also an account in the book of Luke. Right? He, he was physically quite rich. He was very wealthy, a tax collector. So wouldn't Jesus have just passed him by? Right? If he's just there for the phys- you know, those who are poor financially, then he would have just passed Zacchaeus by because he was rich. But he doesn't. Despite Zacchaeus' wealth, Zacchaeus is an impoverished soul. He's captive to sin, and he was sought out by Christ, and he was saved by him. So the mission of Jesus is indeed to bring about a complete freedom from sin, a complete freedom from oppression for those who trust in him. Forgiveness of sins is promised now to his people, release from sin's captivity, and freedom from all other ailments and oppressions will come in fullness later upon his return and establishment of the new heaven and new earth. And so it's, it's a now, and, and you've, you know the phrase, the now and not yet. Right? Some of this we experience right now. We really do have the forgiveness of sins. Jesus really did fulfill what Isaiah 61 is talking about. And there, but there is also future fulfillment to come when we will completely and utterly be free of all form of ailment and sin in its totality. No remnants of the flesh, no oppression from other sinners of any sort or any of our enemies. So, we need to see here that our, our sinful condition prior to being saved is indeed a blindness. It is a captivity. It's an oppression. And it reveals an inward poverty of spirit. Sin is a devastating master. We, we can lose sight of it. Uh, we, can, we can slide sometimes into maybe playing with sin. And certainly as we think of our former life before trusting Christ... We enjoyed our sin. We enjoyed doing what is wicked in a lot of cases. Uh, and yet the truth of the matter is, it's oppressive. It's, a, it's darkness. It's described as an, 
as a, uh, an oppression, as a captivity, it's blindness, it's from our spiritual poverty. And the, the reality is the world remains in this grip. And there is only one to free from this tyranny. And so as, as we labor here to convince you and, and anyone who comes through these doors, or as you uh, try to you know, labor to uh, convince others of their sin and its consequences, this is a loving thing. Because sin is a bondage. It's a bondage that people don't even see because of their blindness to it. They don't even know they're cuffed. And so it's, it is, it's loving to try to help people see it and understand it, even if they don't know it. Why would we do that? Why would we say it? Why do we insist that they be in sin? It's not because we... It should not be because we enjoy some feeling of superiority, but it's because they need to understand. They need to see. They're blind. They need help seeing, and we're here to help explain that and help show them the truth. And so obviously it's something we need to do with compassion and love. I mean, it's tragic. It's sad. People everywhere are chained, and they have no idea. They might even really enjoy it. Plus, we should do this with compassion because we were all there. Think of Wesley's song. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. Uh, Just lost it. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. All right, thank you. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray and I woke the dungeon flamed with light. The idea there, lost in sin's darkness, captive in his dungeon, God reached out, called us, made us to know the gospel. We woke up and flamed with light. We saw clearly. This is what others need. And so if you are here and you know you're still in the dungeon of sin, we beg you to call out to Christ, to unlock it, to set you free, that you confess your sin to Him, Plead with him for mercy. He says he will not cast out those who come to him. And for those, for, for everyone here as we are trusting in Christ, then you, you know the joy of forgiveness. You know that testimony of Wesley. You woke up inflamed with light and you saw it clearly and the joy that that brings. And yet you also have even more to look forward to. A day when you will be completely free from all of sin's taint and effects. That final day when you dwell with the Lord Jesus forever in a resurrected, imperishable body. Jesus came to free us now, and yet there's a day coming when we'll experience this freedom in its ultimate form and in perfection. So stay the course. Whatever comes, stay the course. Take joy and courage in your Savior. Jesus brings good news of complete freedom for sinners. Finally, this mission continues. The year of the Lord's favor continues today. So the final thing uh, that Jesus is anointed to proclaim, uh, in verse 19 here, it says is the year of the Lord's favor. He proclaims the year of the Lord's favor. 
The freedom from sin that he offers is described as the year of the Lord's favor. It's a time of grace. What Jesus is announcing is truly good news. What we need is grace from God, and Jesus says, I'm announcing the year of the Lord's favor. Grace is here. It's available. Interestingly, if you were to flip to Isaiah 61, you can do that now if you want, uh, and see the, where, the, the words of Jesus quoting in verses 1 and 2, you'll notice something interesting about where Jesus ends his quotation in Luke 4. So in Isaiah 61, again, it says, The Lord has anointed me. And then in verse 2, there you have, To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's where Jesus ends the quotation and rolls up the scroll. But the text continues, the very next line, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. So in Isaiah 61, the servant will come, announce the year of favor, and the day of God's vengeance. That is, the day of God's judgment. So in Isaiah, it looks like it's going to happen all at the same time. The servant shows up, he announces favor, judgment, and that's it, it's over. It's going to happen all at once. However, Jesus intentionally, I would say, stops short of mentioning the day of vengeance because the day of vengeance has not yet come. The day of vengeance has not yet been fulfilled. And it wasn't fulfilled in their hearing when he said this in Luke 4, and it has not yet been fulfilled either. So again, this is what we've noted at other times, that Jesus' work spans his two comings. In the first, he came primarily to deal with sin and to announce good news. And upon his return, he will complete the work of salvation he begins in his people, but he will also bring about the day of vengeance, the day of the Lord. And so, the year of the Lord's favor, this is not, this is not literally a one-year period, it's a, it's a period of time in which good news is offered to sinners. So, today, this very day, is the year of the Lord's favor. Right now, as we gather, the gospel continues to be preached throughout the world, and mankind continues to be summoned to repentance and faith. God continues to save people and show grace. It continues to be the year of the Lord's favor. In 2 Corinthians 6, 1-2, Paul makes this clear. He quotes there from Isaiah 49, which is that second servant song that was read earlier in the service. And, and, and in that, in that uh, chapter, it references the favorable time. So it's very similar language to the year of the Lord's favor, and it's, I'd say it's referring to the same thing, namely this time when salvation is offered. And here's what Paul says, in 2 Corinthians 6, 1 and 2. We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, and now he quotes Isaiah 49, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. And then Paul adds this, he says, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So this favorable time, this year of the Lord, this day of salvation is right now. It was, in, uh, as Jesus is teaching there, the time had come, 
As Paul is writing the Corinthians, today is the day of salvation. As we gather here, it continues to be this favorable time in which salvation is extended to sinners by God and through His people. Our God is not done drawing people to Himself. Why does the Lord Jesus delay His coming or what seems like a delay to us? Because there's still sinners to be saved. It is still the day of salvation. So, come. We need to come now while there's still time. Now is the favorable time. But it doesn't last forever. He is returning. Men and women do still die. Time does run out. But today is still the year of the Lord's favor. And if you can hear me now, the Lord summons you through His Word to come out of darkness by repenting of your sin and placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Come while there's time. Further, we need to share this while there's time. We share the, the knowledge that the Lord saves because this is still the year of the Lord's favor. This is part of our mission as a church as we send out missionaries, support missionaries, as we go to our neighbors This is the day of salvation. There's there's hope in this as well, that God will continue to save. How do we have any hope when it's so dark in our world and it's so awful and everything seems out of control? And every time I go on Facebook or Twitter, it's just a dark black mess. Why would we have any hope in reaching out to anybody? Nobody seems to care. All those things are true, but it's still the day of the Lord's favor. He still saves lost people. And so we, we, we share this knowledge while there's still time for people to turn. And it brings about a sense of urgency because it's also an understanding that the year of the Lord's favor isn't forever. The Lord will return and bring about the day of vengeance as well. And yet, this fact that it is the year of the Lord's favor is a great kindness from God. So we have, we have much reason to rejoice in this truth. That God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the earth, who spoke it into being from nothing, would show us kindness. Small, finite people who, if we're honest, get very few things right, who have sinned against this holy, righteous creator, that he would even usher in a year of his favor is a tremendous kindness from Him. So let us take courage in this and, and find hope in it and be strengthened by it and take joy in it. We, we face many trials of various kinds and yet we are recipients of this great kindness and grace from God. So let's fix our, fix our eyes on that. So while many get the life and ministry of Jesus woefully wrong, there's no need for us to flounder about in complete ignorance. The entirety of Scripture points us to His saving work. He knew that when He walked the earth, and He taught that, and we can see this quite plainly here. Jesus is no less than the servant Messiah 
whom Isaiah wrote about hundreds of years before. He brings freedom from sin to those locked in its dark cell. He will one day usher in the new heaven and earth and reign in righteousness for all eternity. In the meantime, the year of the Lord's favor continues as he continues to save even now. This is our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the awesomeness of your word. And we only scratch the surface of it, of just the depths of the wisdom of your wisdom. We catch it in glimpses, and it's amazing. And yet in our finiteness, we lose sight of it again. We struggle to see it clearly. And yet, God, we are told plainly here that Jesus came to bring in, usher in the year of the Lord's favor. And so we thank you for showing us favor. Thank you for showing us grace. God, I pray that every person here would be confident in Christ as their Savior. That every person here will joyfully partake in this year of the Lord's favor. And that one day we will all be in the new heavens and new earth, having made it there together, having gone on this earthly journey together. And God, we pray you, you would be gracious to bring many others along with us. Help us to have the courage to, to share this good news with others and to not be in fear of of what man may say or do. And we pray that as we do this, you would be pleased to save. And God, we, we just give you praise and thanks. We have little else we can do but trust you and thank you. And we declare that you are indeed a great God and Jesus is a great Savior. And so we pray you would increase our joy and our courage, even now, as a result of your word, help us to uh, labor long and faithfully in your word. We pray that you would illuminate our eyes as we study your great word, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.